linebacker, 56 is in the game. And that is caught on the run. And out in front is C.J. Spinner. And Spinner's going to go all the way to end the game. An 80-yard touchdown pass. Damian Wilson was covering on the play. And what a way for Drew Brees to come up with touchdown pass number 400. Drew Brees talked in his press conference about this kind of idea, I guess you would call it divine intervention. Okay. That maybe when the Saints rookie kicker somehow missed a 30-yard chip shot from the hash mark that he likes to kick from. Okay. That maybe it was because it was in God's plan. To get 400 that way? To get 400 that way. So I, I don't know. About all that, I'm not really one for religion, per se. But I think the show got some divine intervention. Okay. As last night, I was preparing to interview Mike Tirico. And we do it once a year. Yeah, about once a year. Sure, yeah. Um, and uh, it was actually it was like pretty much exactly a year ago that we did it with him last. We need like a time hop for the podcast. Like, oh, this yeah. on this date. Um, and uh, I was like, well, what are we going to talk? I had some things and I'm like, man, but it doesn't feel like we have a a main thing. You know, like what's the can't wait to get Mike Tirico thing to talk about on the podcast? And then everything happens at the end of the game. And uh, there it was. So, Mike Tirico joins us today uh, to talk about the game last night, and uh, we'll get to that in a bit. But, uh, maybe there was, uh, maybe it was in God's plan that uh, the podcast has Mike Tirico on the day after that, as opposed to, say, one of the other times when we requested them <laughs> and had right. it not work out. Uh, it is season five, episode 31. We took a week off. We kind of wanted that Richard Deitch interview to sit for a bit longer up at the top. Did you like that? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's always good. Um, and, of course, SL Price is on that one as well, and I thought that was really good. I wanted to keep those up for a bit. Uh, so it's October 6, 2015, um, one day after the birthday of... That's right. Mrs. Caster. How how was Mrs. Caster's birthday? Not eventful. Yeah. We did stuff over the weekend a little bit. Yeah, she, she we were too busy yesterday. Tickle so, the pooper or anything like that? No. No. No, nothing fun. No. Do you have to uh like does she have a thing that she likes you to do like with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in the background or anything like that? No, no. no. I didn't even get her like usually I'll go and stop and get her a cheesecake or something, but she still had leftover cheesecake from like her mom came over for dinner over the weekend, so that was mm. about it. Well, happy birthday, Mrs. Castor, who, you know, I have a long uh, history of just not mixing 
with the girlfriends and wives <laughs> uh, of my friends. Uh, but somehow, uh, I don't know, maybe she just gets me or tolerates me or something. Uh, but we've just never really yeah. clashed like that. So it's definitely more uh, a testament to her than me. <laughs> so um, I think we're good. Three things. Let's do it. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. So, first thing, Don and I were talking show strategy during that clip. Uh, first thing, the Dolphins are the first team to fire their coach. It was actually plus 240 in Vegas. Oh, they had odds, huh? They had odds plus 240 as early as Friday. Was that the best odds? Could was, have been. He was the best. Okay, because that's probably a fluid line. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you could have bet 100 and won 240 on Friday. And basically what you're betting on, in a way, is that the trip to London was a disaster. And it was. And uh, They're bad. That's it. What? They're not what I thought they would be. They're it's totally... It's killing un- me in fantasy. Yeah, they're and, uninspired. Uh, I mean, Tannehill's... This is the year for him, right? Yeah, I don't know what to say about him. Like, It's not, all, it's not his fault, necessarily. He's got a great connection with two of his receivers. People are finally starting to realize what I told them about Kenny Stills. Like... He's just a guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, everyone all summer, like, oh, my God, you lost Kenny Stills. And it's like, he's just a guy. Like, he's not. Right. It's not losing Jerry Rice or whatever people are trying to make it out to be. But, and I guess he played okay, actually, as one of the bright spots of the game in London, right? Didn't he catch the touchdown pass that Tannehill yeah. did have or it's whatever? kind of how he was with the Saints, though. I mean, he caught a long one. Make a play once yeah. in a while. Yeah. And fantasy-wise, you can never count on Yeah, he's a guy. He's a guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, but they just. Like, they can't run it, right? And they can't throw it. No. And Ndamuk and Sue sure does, at this point, look like a guy who took the money and ran. Right, and for a guy that plays with, like, such an edge, like, and over that edge most of the time. But, I mean, that's kind of like, I don't know, maybe you can have that identity and, like, if you want to be a big, mean defense. But they don't look mean at all. And he's almost, you almost don't even notice him. And he had this like press conference in London where he says, "I'm not a very emotional guy" or something. It's like, what? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That if that's true, like, man, I'd be really worried if I was the one who gave you all that money, right? So at this point, I mean, from the point of view of a Bills fan, which you are, it's like, okay, you know, New England is going to be good. You know that going in. Yep. And maybe this year you think, well, maybe Brady's going to miss a game and we could get a jump start. That didn't happen. And uh, at their bye week four, they're 3-0. and They're what the New England is, what we thought they were, right? Uh, uh, but then you probably thought that the next best team was Miami and that the Jets would probably not be very good. And it's kind of the reverse of that, that the Jets are pretty good and they're a team that the Bills are probably be fighting with for one of those wild cards and the Dolphins are just left for dead in a way. Yeah, the Jets' D has been really good and Fitzpatrick has kind of done what Fitzpatrick does. He makes short... And when your defense is as good as that. Yeah, you're not asked to do a lot. I still think there's a shelf life on that, sort of. But if they're going to get get the running that they're getting, the shelf life can last longer. 
Chris Ivory's going to run for 160 yards every time he's healthy, which should be at least eight times this year. Yeah. Uh, you'll be able <laughs> right. to uh, to extend that a bit. Sure, but, yeah. Yeah, so the Dolphins are... Uh, have they replaced the coach? Is it just? I mean, obviously they're going to have to. Yeah, they named uh, an interim coach. Uh, his name is Dan Campbell. But they're not going to replace him this season, I would guess. It'd be weird. Uh, to do I it in would the doubt of the he would get like named the. Uh, he won't get the named main guy. main guy, and they won't hire. He gets a long else. audition. Sure does. Yeah, you know, which could work uh, for him or against him. Um, I guess there's a report by Greg Rosenthal at NFL.com. Uh huh. Um, and it says that the interim coach, Dan Campbell, as I said, uh, stressed changing the team's practice habits in this press conference. It appears that some of those changes were inspired by an incident involving Ryan Tannehill in London. Uh, the National Football Post reported that Tannehill had been getting rattled during practice sessions last week and let his frustrations out on practice squad I players. I heard that, yeah. Um... That's not, it's not a good sign. The Miami Herald and Fox Sports go, goes on to say, both confirmed the guts in the story in which Tannehill becomes angry at a practice squad player that picked off one of his passes. Tannehill reportedly had become increasingly frustrated by his poor practice performance and the attitude of the practice squad players. Uh, reportedly, Tannehill said, enjoy your practice squad paycheck. Enjoy your practice squad trophy. Wow. Now that just screams leadership. Yeah, I mean, these guys, I mean, if you're on the practice squad, sure, you're wearing Miami Dolphin colors, but you're essentially auditioning for that coaching staff and maybe for other, I don't know how much other teams. Everyone coaches this. for, like, everyone's coached for 10 teams, so they're all friends, 10 teams. Right. You know, you want to be able to, hey, this guy's giving me everything he has. Right. Yeah. I, doesn't, if I. He doesn't know Tannehill or anything. What a baby! Yeah, that, that is not a good look. That that's one of those looks where uh, they talk about this a lot on local radio because Joe football fan will say things like about uh, how char- we need character guys and stuff like that. And like when you're bad, your character looks bad generally. And when you're good, you don't talk about character issues. And right now, the Dolphins are bad, so their character issues are going to come up. And if Tannehill didn't like that, he's not going to like this quote from the new coach. To me, the best teams I've been a part of are the ones that during the week, they go after each other. Whether it's practice squad versus a defense, they're giving the look of a practice squad versus offense, but it gets heated and it's intense and it's people that are fighting to win. They want to get noticed or they want to do their job. It's not just going through the motions. Yeah. Dolphins, mess. Speaking of a mess, I talked about it off the front, um, about the league blowing the call in Seattle, and I'm not going to go through it blow by blow as if everyone hasn't heard it yet. Yep. And a really cool thing about talking to Mike Tirico about it is he'll kind of go through the behind-the-scene mechanics of how this sort of got picked up after, on the broadcast, it was never mentioned until after the game. Mm-hmm. So he'll go through the mechanics of how it was discovered and all that stuff. But, you know... This so far during the season, there's flags everywhere. Yep. Right? 14 flags on this team. 18 flags on this team. Uh, 25 flags in this game. It's a record pace, as far as I know, for flags league-wide through this many games played. Yeah, and I'm watching the Bills, who are the most penalized team in the league, so it's, it's a little bit hard for me to grasp. I just assume it's happening to the Bills, and but I, I have at, heard it's league-wide. And yeah. you look at the Bills penalties, and you're like... Agree, 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 disagree, disagree, agree, disagree. It, 
it's always going to be that way, sort of. And then, Trico and I also talk about kind of how you've trained yourself as a fan to have these delayed reactions because you know. Oh my god, I hate it. Anything that happened on the field didn't really happen until we've confirmed it happened, right? Is there, is there ever? I mean, I, obviously there are, but is, it feels like there is never a good punt return that isn't called back. There's a block in the back somewhere on the field. I almost kind of, especially when you're fielding it, like at the 15 or the 20, I just want it to just be fair catch. <laughs> so I don't want to start yeah. at the 10 or something. you right. know. Uh, but here's the thing about that. During the Saints game on Sunday, there was two calls. That were close. Like really close calls. Two 50-50 calls. And they missed them both on the field. One they missed in the Saints' favor. Got reversed to the Cowboys. One they missed in the Cowboys' favor. Got reversed to the Saints. Uh, both fumbles by the running okay, backs. Okay, so not penalty calls. No, reviews. Okay. Then there's also penalties. A lot of penalties in the game. Okay. A lot of them on the Cowboys. A lot of them on the Saints. Then there is... Two calls at the end of the game missed on the Cowboys. One, a face mask that they missed. And another, a huge pick down the field um, by Jason Witten that instead of it being third and 14 from, like, the 20-yard line, it's first and 10 from, like, the 44 the other way. So it's like they just can't get it right, but volume doesn't seem to be helping. And they completely changed the narrative of the season for the Lions and the Seahawks last year, and this is a whole lot of talk for what I'm not sure, except for I just don't know what you do about calling this game anymore. Yeah, I, last night's call was on a huge stage, and it happened at a big time. Uh, and I, in a I am, wide open space with a ref just yeah, staring it down. I am a Seahawks hater. I don't know why necessarily. They just kind of rub me the wrong way. I feel like they're a really good team that gets a lot of – Bounces, especially in that building, right? Fail Mary yeah. uh, happened there. What was same end zone? The uh, game against Tony Romo dropping the ball, same end zone. Right, the game against uh, Green Bay last year. Now nothing bad happened there, but that's one of the luckiest games you will ever see a team win. Right. Well, they Some... got they got the luck like of the guy sliding down after the pick. Oh, right, right. Yeah, it. someone broke that game down. Like, there's like ten instances that any one of them would have changed, they would have lost the game, and it, it was just. Uh, and then this last night, but that's, I don't know, this one bothers me the least, I think, because it's a great play by Chancellor, first of all. to Yeah, I mean, Calvin that, Johnson that, screwed up. That's game over. All right. Uh, if he doesn't do that, obviously. There was no lines there to pick it up. Right. That's Probably would have went out anyway. That's my problem. That's, that's why it doesn't bother me, I think, because it would have been a ticky-tacky way to win the game for the Lions. But I mean, a rule's a rule, so I, I don't know. Had they, call, I, I'm fine with it either way, I guess. That guy, I mean, if that guy just ran into the ball like with his arms at his sides and pushed it out of bounds, it would have been fine, right? Or does he have to act more like he was trying to catch it and then fumble it out of the end zone? You I just mean, can't bat, bat it. it, right? Yeah. But I mean, if his momentum took him out of the end zone, it's not I the right ball. And right? the point of a rule is sort of like. The spirit the of that of the rule, rule is, hey, if the ball is laying around in the end zone, you can't bat it out so the Detroit guy can't pick it up. Right, yeah. One thing they should really look at doing is changing the idea that just because a ball rolls out of the end zone, it's a touchback, and the other teams... I just never got the logic of that. Why it isn't, like, loss of down, ball to 20, or something like that for the other team? Like, why a fumble 
at the one-yard line that bounces out around the cone is the other team's ball, where if it bounced on the other side of the cone, right. it's their ball. I don't really understand the logic of it. I'm sure there is some. I just don't know it. Yeah, the Bills would have liked that last year. Was it Booby Dixon, I think, fumbled out of the end zone to lose a game? But, uh, yeah, it's it's a weird rule. They probably thought the same thing. Like, what do we do with it? Like, what if it goes out there? I guess you could give it to him, like you said, back at the 20. Yeah, it's a loss it down and yeah. at the 20. But, yeah, this one doesn't bother me so much, but it is another badly botched call, and it seemed like a pretty obvious call. Why? And you know what I have the biggest trouble with, maybe that comes out of this more than anything, is uh, it, I can't remember who was the first like, referee to break this down that I heard, but he said that like possession or batting the ball is not reviewable. Why? Well, like, because it is technically a judgment call that he batted it. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? Like where so they the, don't judge, want any... the judgment could be that it hit him. Wasn't there some discussion last year of making pass interference? Yeah, that'd reviewable? be a really difficult one. I mean, if they made that reviewable, which is ultimately a judgment call, just make all of these reviewable. Like, why not review? Like, then there's a head official for a reason. There's a reason only one guy goes under that hood. Let him make the judgment then. Say, like, look, I disagreed with your judgment on that. I've got 18 camera angles. You had to look at it real speed uh, in the flow of the game. I. That's a real obvious, so just, I don't know, let them review them if you want. The only other thing I think I wanted to mention about the NFL this week is, uh, did you want to say anything about Clay Matthews trolling Colin Kaepernick on the field and saying, as only Clay Matthews could put it, <laughs> you're no Colin Wilson, bro, or Russell Wilson? Russell Wilson. No, that's, that's pretty funny. Uh, I, I like when the guys get mic'd up. I thought it was funny last year, or maybe it was two years ago, when uh, the... Uh, I can't remember the team now, but they were yelling uh, Papa John's or whatever at uh, Peyton Manning. <laughs> so I, I like hearing that stuff. It's, it's I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff said on the field we don't get to hear. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, do you want to talk about our teams at all? Uh, look, I'm glad my team got a win. Uh, the Drew Brees stuff was amazing. Uh, so glad for him, so proud of him. Played so well, even though he got, I saw, a highly negative grade on that football site that grades yeah i like even though he had like eight incompletions and no picks i really like analytics but that one i think needs tweaking they gave aaron Rodgers like the week he had like five touchdown passes or four touchdown passes a kind of low score obviously heavily docking guys for average yards per pass yeah and it's something to do with like the uh the situation or maybe they don't give him enough credit for the situations they put themselves in or the pre-snap calls they make i don't i don't know some it when you're giving guys bad grades for okay breeze had he was about over 75 percent passing over 300 yards two tds no picks i mean that's that should be as close to a <laughs> not good enough for them yeah uh the bills did not have the week i think a lot of bills fans expected no it's super aggravating yeah that, bad week for the quarterback yeah i think there's got to be some I'm, I'm some reality about what he is, in my opinion. I'm far less impressed with the offensive coordinator. I mean, no one expects Tyrod Taylor, I think, to be Drew Brees. He almost threw for 300 yards in the game. His uh, completion percentage wasn't good. He had a touchdown call back on a holding call. A nice long rush. Was that the clay one? Uh, I don't. Oh right, no, he I, had one, and he had a touchdown pass. Yeah, he had, So I mean, 
right. from a fantasy and real perspective, two penalty calls, and right. he had a fantastic one. One I thought was iffy. The other one was seemed legit. Right. I forget um, which was which. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that they were bad calls. It's just, I mean. Sucks. What yeah. do they bad say? Timing, He's holding right. on every yeah. play, and they got caught on that one. Um, it's aggravating not to beat that team, though. I mean, those are the type of teams that, not that the Giants are a bad team. A long time. They had a long time it, to sit and think about it, get healthy. I, yeah, I guess. It's, it's just a, that's a good test. The defense played fine. Uh, if you take away the Jennings play when maybe they thought the game was over and it just whatever. They, you might find out the Giants aren't as bad as you thought going into I don't. Team. I don't think they're bad. I think that's a team, though, that – They could very easily win 10 games and win that division. Right, sure. I mean, that's what the Giants kind of do. Uh, I just want them to beat a team like that. Like, I want them to go out – if the Bills want to be a playoff team, go out and beat another team that's a playoff team and don't – it was a really aggravating game. Who do game, they play this week? It's only one game. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I know they have Cincinnati coming up um, in two weeks. I don't know. I should know. Well, this. then they better win this week. You don't want to have to mess around with Cincinnati. Tennessee. So, so yeah, I mean, better be, better they're going to go out one. there and what, win that game by 30, and then we still won't know what the Bills are. So that, that's that's kind of where I am. I think, I I think that's kind of what the season's going to be like, to be honest. Yeah, I think I wanted to know more who they were after that game. And the defense looked really good. For the most part. And like I said, I'm not impressed. They have to be more disciplined. Too many – way, way, way too many penalties. Oh, for sure. And um, – Now, if I'm going to play Homer a little bit with that, there were – and I guess there was another one. But if you take five of them off the top, they still have 15. The personal fouls suck. And you want your guy, even if something crappy happens to you, to suck it up and walk away. Don't cost your team 15 yards. But in a play that wasn't even the one that was mentioned, I saw – Odell Beckham throw a punch, and the guy yeah, that you got, did, they didn't. That's right. That's what sucks. No, it, right, and that's what it's the like players a rabbit. The field it's like a rabbit realize. punch, like under the right. And I, I mean, I saw the video, and it's like, yeah, right. I guess that you punched him. I don't know how anyone's going to see that. Right, but like I said, I mean, you've got to play in control. I it's mean, like they when, held him all day long. They they beat Odell Beckham Jr. on that day. It's just everyone you can't do that. Everyone says in those piles with the footballs. Right. You know, the scrum, when the football's loose and they get scrums, you know, guys grabbing people's sacks and things like right, that. Right, right. Uh, guys don't get a personal foul every play because someone was dirty to them right. over there. So I think part of this that's aggravating, and this is not as a homer, this is kind of a criticism of the Bills, is I think this reputation probably came with Rex it does. Ryan. It does, yep. And they're not going to get the benefit of these calls. That said, he's got to fix that, and they have to know better. Yep. I mean... They're There's just, no one to blame but themselves, and it's way out of control. Yeah, yeah. Personal fouls are ridiculous. You got to, you just can't. It's too much. All right, game time. Don, uh oh. Starting tonight, to my delight, are the Major League Baseball playoffs. Okay. So the game is simply called, "Who Made the Major <laughs> League Baseball Playoffs?" You have five teams from each league. Three. Division winners and two wild card teams. This Which is going to be as embarrassing as you expect. Would you like to start with? Oh God! Let's uh, start with the American League, who plays the wild card game tonight in this state. Who do you got uh, in right, the game? So the Yankees are one of the teams. That is correct. And I know all and along they play the second place team from the American League Western Division. Oh. Uh... I'm going to mess this up. I don't know the divisions very well either. Is it Texas? Texas is in the playoffs, so I'll give you that. But they won the division. They won the division over this team 
narrowly. It's not like a huge screw up to say this team won. The Dodgers? No, God, no. Come on, Dodgers are in the National League for seven oh, years now. Yeah. yeah, I'm just thinking West Coast. Teams. Hang on to that thought, though. Okay. Uh, who did they beat out? A team that when we played this game earlier, who's in first place? Oh, Kansas City. No, Kansas City won their division by a mile. Yep, so you got them. They're also in the American League. So right now you have the Yankees, Kansas City, and Texas. And I know Toronto won the division, too. You got Toronto now, so, so you're missing, missing the last only team, team also in the state of Texas. Oh, Houston? Yes. Why did I think Houston was a National League team? They that, used to be. That Okay, that's what screwed me up. All right, we've been talking about this a lot. That one of these divisions is going to have a tournament, so you should have three of the teams right away because we've been talking about the NL Central, how the three best teams in baseball came out of that, two of them would have to play each other in the wild card, and then the winner would face the other team. So you should have three easy ones. I'm going I'm to miss the top named. one probably. Oh, okay, so the one I already named was uh, the Dodgers. They're not part of the tournament, but they're a playoff team. Okay. They're not part of the NL Central tournament. They won the West. Okay. And they will play the winner of the NL East, who was not... The Mets. The NL East is the Mets, right. It's right. the Mets. I was to say, not the Nationals, right. even though they, they thought the Mas- you could make it every year. Fell out, right. right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they didn't. Okay, so it's Pittsburgh, yep. Chicago, yep. St. Louis. Yes, you got them. Hey, all right. I see it do too bad. No, that's, yeah. I mixed up Houston, but at least I had a good Yeah, reason. Houston was the one who stalled you, yep. but you got them. So, um, by the time you hear this, probably at least one, if not... Two of the wild card games will be over. I'm glad for Chicago they finally made it. I mean, they have. I don't. I don't Hopefully know. Hopefully they're in it is. for longer than five right, minutes. Right. No, they won 96 games. They had I know the third it, best record in it baseball. W- it was crazy that their record was that good, and they were looking at missing them. They were never looking at missing, really. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. they were looking at being maybe fifth or whatever. Right. So uh, those wild card games will end. We'll talk more about the baseball playoffs with Jonah Carey, and uh, we'll talk more as we go on, of course. All right, last thing, because the music ended a while ago, and uh, we have to move on to Mike Tirico. Uh There is a scandal brewing in the daily fantasy sports world. You might have heard about this. I did not. Uh, I heard what, a local guy won like a million dollars. Yeah. I also heard that that guy had like 65 lineups in play and like $9,000 at risk. That really? Yeah. Okay, because when he called like the local radio station, he said he put that line up in like ten minutes before kickoff. Like, Maybe it was one of his one of his nine thousand dollars. He called the radio station like, "Yeah, I just put three bucks on there and picked the lineup, and next thing you know, I won a million. Oh, good. All a right, guy, guy with nine thousand dollars disposable income, right? Wins. A guy who's Cinderella trying to story. do it as a pro- yeah, professional, so. right? Um, okay, so here's the deal. So you know that there's the two major players in this, right? DraftKings FanDuel and DraftKings. Right. Well, apparently there's essentially some allegations that someone from DraftKings is telling someone from FanDuel what the lineup percentages are for players and vice versa. For their dollar amounts? Is that how they determine the next week's It's not for that, but if you know how many percentage of players have Aaron Rodgers, you know not to pick Aaron Rodgers. And you think that you want Andrew Luck, and it's sort of a push. You, yeah, it's basically like insider trading with stocks. A little bit, yeah, yeah. I see that. Um, let's see if they explain it better than I do. Um, okay, so the two companies were forced to release statements. This is from the New York Times. 
uh, defending their business integrity after what amounted to allegations of insider trading. The employees were placing vets using information that's not available to the public. Uh, the statement yeah, released... Yeah, I mean, that, that's the problem there if they're not making it available. Right. Uh, the employee kind of at um, an issue here, uh, he won $350,000 on FanDuel. Oh, really? You know, on DraftKings. Um, and I also seen some, like, history of his baseball over the last month. And, I mean, he's slaughtering it. Really? They might as well not even pay him at DraftKings. Uh, I'm surprised by that because when I first heard it, it's like... My biggest problem was that they're not making it available to the fans, but my thought was, well, even if 90% own Aaron Rodgers, it's still probably the right play to take Aaron Rodgers most of the week. You know what I mean? Like, the best player. Um, Let's see. An expert says, a gambling lawyer says, it's absolutely akin to insider trading. It gives that person a distinct edge in the contest. Yeah, he's figured out out how to work it. The episode has raised questions about who at Daily Fantasy Companies has access to valuable data, such as which player a majority of the money is being bet on. Uh, how it's protected and whether industry can or wants to police itself. That's what I was going to ask next is how is this even legal? Well, I've said it all along. Look it. I've dabbled in it this year. Sure. You've dabbled in it. Yeah. Uh, it could be fun, but it's gambling. Right. I, I don't know if you, you listen to Corolla's podcast at all, but uh, what's the guy from Community? He used to do the talk soup. Maybe he still does the soup. Um, I know who you're talking about. Tall I'm never guy. His okay, name, yeah. yeah. Um, he was on there, and, and he was kind of like – they always talk about yes and on Adam Carolla's show. It's like a, a ad lib. What is it called? The thing like whose line is it anyway? If you're, improv. improv. If you're doing yeah. improv, yes and. You don't say no because it screws everything up. And he was not yes anding anything. Like he was just kind of busting Adam's balls the whole show. And Adam was doing, I think they have DraftKings. They were doing a DraftKings live read. And he just kept saying stuff like, I can't believe this isn't considered gambling. I don't know how this isn't considered gambling. And then Dawson, the guy that's like his announcer, goes, Okay, stop. We have to stop saying gambling. We can't say gambling anymore <laughs> because they. It must be a big deal, like to them. Do not associate us with gambling. But it, look, it, it clearly is. I think gambling should be legal, and I think this is gambling. And the reason I think it's legal, it should be legal, is because I think it needs to be policed by the Federal Gaming Commission or whoever it is that oversees, say, bets at a horse track. Sure. And, and if these guys are just going to be allowed to run wild, things like this will happen. Now, Plus, if you're allowed to bet in a casino, if you're allowed... I mean, if you're allowed to place money into a slot machine that has horrible odds, uh, I mean, I guess that's probably how they get away with this. They say it's a, it's a game of skill, right? Yeah, it has something to do with a law that was passed to Same with, like, essentially poker. allow fantasy football. Right. Um, if But if, if I can walk into a casino and put money into a slot machine and... No, I'm going to lose that money. Like, why? Why isn't all gambling legal? I don't like the hand holding. Like, all of a sudden, society's going to fall apart, and uh, everyone's going to be an addict, a gambling addict, and whatever. I mean, I think those people that have that tendency to gamble their life away, we're going to do it one way or another. So, a spokesman for DraftKings uh, acknowledged that empo- employees of both companies have won big jackpots at, on other sites. Sounds like you can't play on DraftKings if you work there. So you just okay. play on FanDuel, sure, and right. you meet a guy at FanDuel, and you share information with him, yeah. and he wins on your site, and you win at his. Um, uh, both companies have strong policies in place to ensure that employees do not misuse any information at their disposal and strictly limit access to company data to only those employees who require to do it for their jobs. 
Employees with access to this data are rigorously monitored by internal fraud control teams. And we have no evidence that anyone has misused it. Maybe, maybe not. Here's what I think about FanDuel and DraftKings uh, and how flooded it is and this intensity of it. It absolutely sounds to me like something there's going to be a 30 for 30 about in 10 years (laughs) saying, remember DraftKings and what the hell happened to that? This was overnight. I mean, DraftKings may have existed last year. It did, yeah. But the biggest fantasy podcast in the world has got to be that ESPN one, right? It's With it's Matthew already, Barry. yeah. It's, and that they talk about DFL numbers, daily fantasy numbers are now like guys. I don't like them in weekly fantasy, but or in uh, season daily, long, yeah. but I like them in daily. Yeah. Like, there's analysis about daily that wasn't there last. And year. And Matthew Barry got killed online for his she, first love yeah, hate, essentially yeah. being a DraftKings column. People don't like that. Uh, look, it, there's states where it's illegal already. Um, it's headed to something. So we'll see what happens. All right. We are going to take a break and come back with Mike Tirico. All right. Our next guest is from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and is a graduate of Syracuse. In 1991, he joined ESPN as a sports center anchor and has since has done just about everything there, including covering the World Cup, uh, tennis, and, of course, the play-by-play man for Monday Night Football. He's making his fourth appearance on the show today. A warm sportscasters, welcome to Mike Tirico. How you doing today, Mr. Tirico? Good, good day. How are you, sir? Very good, and... You know, you have this whole kind of agenda set out when someone like Mike Tirico is going to be on the show. You think, all right, what can we talk to Mr. Tirico about today? And then you sit down for Monday Night Football, and (laughs) whatever you planned on doing, at least in the beginning, is junked. Because (laughs) I made this tweet yesterday on Twitter. I said, you know, know, I'm a big Saints fan. And I said, people should appreciate the Saints even more tonight. Because when we go to Seattle for Monday Night Football, we just get our butts trounced. We leave no no room for any of this silliness that goes on there the other times. Um, what is it? Twelve hours later, uh, what are you thinking right now about what happened last night? Well, it's a heck of a finish to a game. Uh, it's odd and bizarre and just reminds you that just when you think things are in position to finish accordingly, something strange is going to happen. I wish I would have caught the bat live. Uh, I didn't, and I, you know, have kind of gone through why did I miss it live uh, when it happened on the play. Uh, I think, you, you don't know, I think I would have caught that because I'm, I'm used to that batting rule. I've seen it. We've had it in games before. And my initial priority was, and I, I, I took my eye away from the ball for that half second as Calvin Johnson's approaching the plane, I went to look at the officials to see if he had signaled touchdown, if he broke the plane, because we're up at midfield, and that's happening down at the goal line. So I go from the ball to the officials, see if he's gone up for touchdown, look up and see the ball's out of the end zone, and say it's either touchback or he broke the plane. We'll see what the call is. So I I, I wish I could go back with hindsight and rework the process of looking at the ball first, then coming back uh, to the official. But what a strange, strange set of circumstances. Disappointing way for a team to lose a game, no doubt. And I, I think, I think when you look at it, you know, it's, an, it's another flaw in a very complex NBA, NFL rule rule system. 
the fact that that's there and it's in the last two and it goes to replay, but replay couldn't correct it because it's a penalty that involves some judgment. It's it's all a little bit. The, the lines are, are so intersected and crossed now that I think it's become challenging to officiate the game for these guys and for the league as well. You know, and I think kind of tied into that as well. When I'm watching a game, and I think there was one really great example of it on Sunday night when I was watching the Saints game where Joseph Randall uh, tries to uh, score a touchdown from in close and the ball gets knocked out yeah. and it's called a fumble on the field and you think your team has made this game-changing play. And 10 years ago, I would have stood up, gave a fist pump, screamed, who knows? Instead, I sat there calmly and said, well, maybe, let's see. Uh, there's no, you don't, it's almost like you don't react to anything right away because you know the game is going to stop. And right. now on that play, it's a pretty cut and dry rule, right? Did the ball cross the plane or not? Uh, sure. but a lot of plays, it's like, there's this whole list of things you have to go through in your mind. And as a fan, I hope I understand them. I'm not even sure if I do sometimes, especially in terms of catches. It's like, well, well, I, I don't even try to figure it out. I just sit there calmly and let them tell me, did we get the call or not? Uh, and I think that goes to your point of just how com- complicated and convoluted it, it can be. Well, you bring up two different points there, and, and I don't think either one is wrong. Yes, the immediate emotion of the game has been taken out because you're waiting for that replay hammer to come down. Secondly, when you have these situations, they all have a history. They all are built off of something. So what it's, what it's really become, is, to me, is akin to the NCAA rulebook. You can go through the NCAA rulebook, and I don't mean the on-the-field, I mean the off-the-field stuff, and somebody who's been around for a long time can sit there and tell you every reason the rule was put in. This rule is in place because School X tried to do this back in 1973, so we had to make it illegal so there was no unfair advantage, and so on and so on and so on. Well, the NFL now, you have rules that are put in because plays happen and people saw different things that, well, that shouldn't be legal. You're right. They vote on it. Let's not make that legal. Let's redefine it like this. And now those things are starting to stack on top of each other, and we've ended up with a superior, uh, an incredibly complex rule book that's really hard to adjudicate for the officials, for New York and all that, and like you said, for the fans. Here's what I'd, what I'd be interested in seeing. What if we had six weeks of the NFL season with no replay and your team gets jobbed on a call? Are you going to be happy about that? Are you going to feel good about it? You're going to say, no, I can see it at home. These guys couldn't see it because there was a body in the way or it was going full speed. They couldn't make the call correctly, and there was no safety net to change it. Then how are you going to feel? So as frustrated as we all get regarding those plays, and the replay stoppages, there's too much that's going on in the game to let it all go. So yeah. it's a fine line. I understand your frustration. We feel it in the booth, too. It's not the most enjoyable TV, but that's the reality of where we are. And I don't see us dialing back technology. Look, life was better when we all spent more time talking to each other and not texting or tweeting or uh, reading the Internet. Life was easier when there was one phone and you didn't carry a phone with you constantly. But the, we all advance and go forward, 
and the challenges to manage all that. And I think that's akin to where the NFL has gone with all these rules. Yeah, you're totally right about that. I think above everything, we want to feel at the end of the game like everything went right, everything was called fairly. Like in that, hey, look, just you know, think of your Buffalo. Think and, and you're you're yeah. almost, you're almost 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 too young to to relive this. I'll tell you exactly where I was. I was in Pinehurst, North Carolina, at the U.S. Open, waiting for this game to waiting for this game to end. How about the Stars and the Sabres in the Stanley Cup Finals? Oh, I remember it very, very, very well, very well. <laughs> oh, okay. So you are a little old. Okay. Yeah, how, about, how about that play? In, in today's NHL, I think we would have watched that play a little bit more. Right. I think that play would have been a little bit more closely scrutinized. That was kind of a quick review. I think Not, I don't think no that would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've advanced now yeah. to the point where that would have really seen a fine tooth, and that goal probably would have been disallowed. Yeah, and so the frustrating that's the, that's the evolution of it. And it, while it takes the emotion away for the fans, if you're in Buffalo, you for darn sure would like to still have that overtime going on. With it. Yeah. 17 years later, 16 years later, you'd still like to have that overtime going on. Yeah, and try to pull it out and, and take our chances with Hashik in Game 7. Uh, anyway, are, are you are you are you doing this interview by the way in a in a Jack Eichel jersey? <laughs> it's right across. I, t- I won one at a stag this summer, so there's one not far you away did. from here. Yes, I did. Yeah, I was, I, I'm now, very it's, it's shame on me for not knowing this. What what number is Eichel wearing? Uh, he'll be wearing number fifteen. He'll be fifteen. Okay. Now I, I bet that is going to be probably the most popular Christmas gift oh, yeah. in in Western New York coming up here in the next and Hanukkah gift in the next two months. Cool thing about Jack Eichel, he. Uh, Decided on number fifteen a while ago, but okay. he's worn number forty-one, his training camp uh, rookie camp number, and he says he won't wear fifteen until he makes the team. Oh, cool! So I love all that. through the preseason, he's stuck with forty-one. He's a really, really uh, likable kid. You're going to love him. I I love that. I I, I got to tell you, I, I could sense the excitement. I was I was up there briefly uh, in early August, and you could sense the Sabers' excitement, the stuff that's going on. Uh, the Harbor Side, that's what it's called, right? Harbor Side? Harbor Center, yep. Harbor Center, I'm yep. sorry, I'm sorry. All the stuff that's going on there uh, by the old Erie Canal and boy, yeah. downtown has a little jump and a vibe where the old Odd used to be. is just a great area down there. It's just nice to see uh, Buffalo get a little bit of a, a little boost here and get Eichel there. McDavid and uh, Edmonton got a couple of longtime hockey-loving markets who are getting yeah. two terrific players. It's very cool for the sport. Tell you what, Mike, that, that Pagula money, it spends well down in the downtown area. <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you a quick story. You're talking about Terry and Kim Pagula, who are the owners of the uh, Sabres and the Bills. Uh, their daughter, Jess, yeah, played US tennis Open. and uh, had a great run in the U.S. Open, winning a match, uh, almost winning a second. And uh, I got to meet the Pagulas at the NFL owners' meetings this past winter. And I knew, and I'd seen them once uh, another time in between then. And uh, I went to go watch Jess play her first-round match at the U.S. Open. I was uh, going to be on the air calling a match a couple hours later. And I went to go watch a little bit of her match with them. And it was really uh, really neat to see and fun to do because uh, Terry was in one part of the uh, small stadium and Kim was in the other. They, they, one of them, I forget which one, I think it's Terry, needs to kind of hop in and out of this. You can't stay watch the whole match. gets really nervous. needs to hop in and out. It was right. fun to see these owners of the Bills and the Sabres, the rare people who own two North American professional sporting teams, are watching their daughter, and they're just like any other parent watching their kid. You're just dying with every bounce of the ball. It was neat to see. And it was great for her, too. She had battled a lot of injuries, I know, and uh, to get to that. 
that point, like you said, win one and, and come close in the second one. It was, uh, everyone was really happy for her here. She's The Pagula family has the su- complete support of the Buffalo uh, New York area. I promise you that. They saved, they, they saved, saved sports in the city in, yeah. a, in a large way. You know, I mean, yeah. Who would have thought, here we are with all of this conversation about teams moving to Los Angeles and the NFL, and four years ago, if you would have said that there are going to be three teams being talked and none of them were going to be the Buffalo Bills, yep. that would have been an all-time shocker. And, and that's what's <laughs> happened. And, it's, and two people are responsible. That's Terry and Kim Pagula. Yeah. I want to get back a little bit to last night. I wanted sure. to ask you about sort of the, me- the mechanics of it behind the scenes. Uh-huh, sure. Because obviously, very quickly after the play – it's like it shifts from not that play, but to can the Lions get the ball back here? And I know you've right. said on Twitter that very quickly in your head, you went to that math and yes. and then the thought of that and the game. Uh, and so the game kind of happens a little bit. What are the mechanics kind of behind the scenes of kind of, I don't know, of discovering the rule is the right sure. idea? Or, or how did that sort of all play out uh, out outside of our view yeah no no problem at all uh you know somebody had asked me on twitter you know it's typical of people on twitter that right. you know every every and, and that's just the way the medium is it, it it's meant it or it's become criticism first and somebody said well you know how come how come you didn't see it first i said well i, I didn't criticize the official for not seeing it i'm i was trying to relay the fact from the nfl and when i said i said i'll be glad to explain why i didn't catch it and as i said to you before I, I'm watching Calvin Johnson get to the goal line. Mm-hmm. I see the ball come out, and I immediately look to the referee is he touched down or not. We didn't show it all the way through in a replay to see if the ball went out of bounds or how it went out of bounds. We all knew it went out. Usually, that's never the case to see that it didn't get that it got pushed out of bounds. So we we were focused on the punch, the punch of the ball out, breaking the plane or not. We always like to give the NFL as many looks as possible so they can confirm that call since it's in the last two and it's a turnover. So I'm involved in all that. And then immediately, as I'm watching Chance, I'm thinking, where did he come from? Because he wasn't the initial tackle. Right. You know, what, amazing what a, what play. A play. Yeah, amazing play. What a, what a play he made. Where yeah. did he come from? Let's make sure we're showing the effort of Cam Chancellor, who missed all the camp, and it's just back two weeks. And then, as I said in Twitter, one of the things I'm thinking, because you're thinking at that point the game's over, and I, I'm just making sure I do the math in my own head to properly say how much time the Lions should have if they stop Seattle and get the ball back. And we had kind of gotten to on air that they had would have 45 seconds approximately left and no right. timeouts to get the ball back. And now it's, you know, we come back and they're playing, they're playing ball, and John's making a good point here. You've got a rookie running back in Thomas Rawls. Ball security is very important, so you're kind of moving forward in all of that. As the the game ends, talking about the play, and then one of our guys, and I forget who it was, somebody in the truck said, hey, do you ask Jerry Austin, who refereed two Super Bowls and is in the booth, ask Jerry if there's any issue with a batted ball at the end of that uh, punch-out play. And I, I didn't see it when it happened, and so I immediately look at, uh, we get Jerry back on headset, we start looking at the replays, and I started getting to my phone. I started to get to a couple of people who I know who are officials. I try to contact someone. Our truck contacts Dean Blandino, the head of officiating for the NFL. We look at all these replays. And now we're trying to get to our sports center guys and say, guys, you got to come back to us. Right. We're looking at this. This happened. Let's get this on the air as soon as possible. Let's get Jerry in position. So there's a lot of uh, mechanics. Usually at the end of the game, we record one segment 
for uh, ESPN Digital, and then we're heading out of the booth, and I was heading to a flight. So usually we'd be just kind of packing up our day's work and done. And instead, once we noticed this, we try to put a stop on that and uh, go forward and try to do the best reporting job we could on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'll be honest, I noticed the bat, and my first thought was, wow, how do you play? Touchback. Right. You know, I, di- I didn't – I'll completely admit I didn't know the rule uh, or th- – I think when I thought of the rule, I kind of thought of it in the other way of, like if I would have seen maybe a Lions player bat the ball and someone else recover sure. it, it might have come right. to my mind that, oh, you can't do that in the end zone. Right. Uh, and, and that's the thing. That when the batting leads to a recovery, it's pretty clear. Right. It's a light we ball. See, we see, and Steve Young asked this question on SportsCenter of Jerry Austin uh, right after the game, and I couldn't hop back in with the answer, and it, it's, it's no big deal. When a ball gets batted by a punter or a quarterback, snap goes over his head. Right. Safety. When he bats, when he bats the ball in the end zone, it's a penalty on the offense in the end zone, which automatically safety. becomes right. a safety. Yeah. The result of the play is a safety. So two become one. You know, so it, it, you don't often hear the case because he batted it out of the end zone. Uh, the offensive player batted it out of the back of the end zone. It's a penalty for illegal touching. Therefore, it's a safety. His action of batting it out does one and the same. So usually it's all in one part of a big announcement, but you know it's a safety. It's not that big a deal. So you rarely see it on the defensive side happening. And for the people who are asking, why is that a rule? Well, think about it. Seattle gets the ball back without possessing it. So K.J. Wright would have had to catch that ball, and it wasn't moving very fast, but he was moving fast as I've gone back and watched it now. K.J. Wright has to catch the ball and get two feet down inbounds as he's coming towards the end line to make it a touchback, or to make it Seattle ball and a touchback. If he gets the, catches the ball and gets one foot down, then the other foot's out of bounds, Seattle doesn't retain possession there. That becomes Detroit ball. Mm-hmm. So, so that, there's a lot of stuff. That's why the batting rule's there in the back of the end zone. And, and again, you almost never see that happen. It just happens to happen on national TV at the end of a close game with two playoff teams from the year before. It involves big-time stars like Calvin Johnson and, Kate, and uh, Cam Chancellor. So that's how it all becomes you know, from a small thing to a huge thing, uh, as, as every little bounce of the ball in the NFL seems to lead us to. Yeah, you know, it's really fascinating. And to listen to you tell that, that story, you know, ever since we've spoke on this show, it's been you and John in the booth. And before that, there was a period where you were the constant, but there was turnover here and there. Now, you guys mm-hmm. have gotten really firm, and the chemistry is there, and everything's working there. Now we get to see, or I get to hear anyway, what sounds like a really cohesive unit, not just in the booth, but all through the operation of Monday Night Football. How do you oh, feel yeah. about Monday Night Football in 2015 in terms of you go there and you do the job, and there's all these people around you doing a job as well. How do you feel about where it, where it is right now in terms of just the cohesiveness of everyone working together? Well, it's great. You know, John's our coach. Uh, John Gruden coaches us up every week on the teams, on what to look for, and I'm as well prepared for those broadcasts as I am for anything I've ever done in my career because of John's tireless work. I mean, John took a, took a team to the Super Bowl and won it, and has coached a whole bunch of playoff games, has coached with some of the best coaches in the league, learned offense from some of the best people in football, uh, going back to Mike Holmgren, Bill Walsh, and all the, all the people on those staff. So John brings an incredible knowledge and depth, and he shares that with us weekly to get us prepared for what's coming in the game. Like, for example, the, the pressure that Detroit brought 
to force those turnovers. Uh, the turnover that finally won that Wilson spit out that it turned into the Karan Reed touchdown on Monday. That's all stuff John prepared us during the week, these blitzes that the Lions tend to bring from different places and different individuals in the secondary. So you, we're able to quickly get to the replay of why it happened because John had schooled all of us on that with his preparation throughout the week. Uh, Jay Rothman's our producer. Chip Dean is our director. They've done football together for 25 years. Uh, they've done all 140-something games we've done for Monday Night Football. Uh, they're great. They're tireless. They are, uh, they are all, including John, I'm in that group as well, Lisa Salters. We're all pushed by, you know, how do you get better next week? How do you... Uh, find a way to make the show better, to make it a little more entertaining, to make it more football-centric, to tell somebody else's story. And uh, it's a treat. It's a treat to be with all of them and to do all of that. And I think everyone coming from a common personality type really helps us drive each week to, to make this show as uh, comfortable and seamless to watch as possible and entertaining along the way, too, because you have a lot of options on a Monday night. We want to if the game gets bad, I would say you have to be better in the booth, and we try to do that as often as possible. Yeah, I think it was uh, Collinsworth said on Sunday an interesting thing is talking about the Saints uh, playing uh, you know night games in the Superdome, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a close game at the time, and he said something like, you know, usually in here you got to make sure you got some stories ready for the third and fourth quarter because they're just yeah. going to – yeah, so i got to chuckle out of that. It's kind of what yeah, you, same same yeah. was true with Seattle. You know, that was yeah. Seattle's first primetime home game since the opening game of the 2014 season. The defending Super Bowl champs had all their primetime games on the road because uh, they had just been blowing people out in all 2013 at home. It was hard to put them on TV because right. it was a one-sided game. So Seattle played most of its primetime action on the road last year. And it was nice to be back there for a Monday night game, and it was a heck of a show. Now you mentioned working with Gruden and how he's kind of the coach of the team, and I watched really closely the uh... – Serena Williams match in the U.S. Open that you call in the semifinals, and a few, okay. a few before that as well, uh-huh. that she ended up, uh, she ended up losing the semis. Um, now I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it was you and Mary Jo Fernandez in the booth. You got it right. right, absolutely. How does it compare um, calling a game with someone like Mary uh, or a match? I guess is the more appropriate sure. term yeah. uh, with Mary Jo Fernandez. Uh, more known, obviously, uh, Gruden's a coach, and, and you call him a coach. Right. How, what is it like uh, then, in contrast, working with uh, Mary Jo, uh, a two-time Olympic uh, medalist and a major champion, uh, working with her in the booth? Yeah, and, and Mary Jo has uh, she's captained our uh, Fed Cup team and our U.S. team at the Olympics too for uh, for women's tennis. So she's got a little bit of that experience. But Mary Jo really made her name as a player at a very good one at yeah. a very young age. Youngest player to win a U.S. Open match. Either youngest or second. Youngest to win a U.S. Open match. So Mary Jo's been around this for a long time. And you know, Chris Fowler and I had this really uh, enjoyable conversation uh, about this uh, tennis topic uh, while we were, I think, at Wimbledon this year. You work with, in any day, maybe five or six different people. You might call a match with Chrissy Everett or Mary Joe or Darren Cahill or Brad Gilbert or Pam Shriver's courtside. Uh, you may be on the set with any one of those people or Johnny Mack or Patrick McEnroe. And that's a unique, uh, that's a unique and different skill set. So you don't get into the rhythm necessarily of one partner and what they do. And I love it because I try to approach a match with Mary Jo a bit differently than I do a match with Chrissy Everett or differently than Patrick McEnroe, 
Johnny Mac got, go in the booth and say almost nothing about the match beforehand because you just kind of let John go, and then you just <laughs> I, I try to just uh, just co-pilot the ship there and you know, make sure yeah. we get to break and do all that we need to do uh, because John's got that one of a kind personality, but each one's different. And it's a lot of fun. It's much easier to get into a rhythm of working with the same person constantly. But I go back to uh, my days of doing SportsCenter 24 years ago now of uh, working with a variety of people as uh, one of the most important things I did. Because going from that to working ESPN Radio to starting to work the studio for college football and college basketball gave me all these opportunities to work with many different partners. And I'll do a basketball game different with Dan Dockage than I will Hubie Brown. Uh, I, I think our role in television, especially as the play-by-play announcer, is to, one, make sure we smoothly navigate everything that's happening and document it on the field. And then, secondly, bring out the best in the analyst. And they're all different personalities. So my job is to try to get them to say the things that they may not suggest on their own, but to be curious and ask them the question that hopefully will elicit the right answer at the right time. The Sportscaster here with Mike Tirico, uh, kind enough to join us again. We kind of do this once a year. Uh, he's at Mike Tirico on Twitter. Uh, uh, Mr. Tirico, just a few quick things and I'll let you go. You know, I really enjoyed that U.S. Open uh, this year. I was excited going into it about the Serena slam and how that might play out. And uh, I've been excited uh, for a while to see if Federer could, you know, get one more. Right. Another thing that was kind of interesting to me, and I know it's a look at the the Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year is not exactly uh, the Nobel Peace Prize or anything, but um, a lot of people, including Richard Deitch, very loudly had been proclaiming that in their mind, you know, Serena Williams had this thing locked up regardless of the U.S. Open, and I kind of agreed with them. I I was thinking like, ah, well, maybe is it the horse? And then I'm like. Come on, really? You're gonna make an argument for a horse? He doesn't even, right. you know, you know. And then I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking yeah, it's got to be Serena, and and then I was also thinking about the the women's soccer team, uh, maybe them. And I thought, you know, they have a really good case. And then as I'm watching the U.S. Open, I'm thinking, I wonder if the problem with Serena is that Djokovic maybe had a better year than her. In the well, that, that's that's the, the uh, that's the point. I think we all walk away from that. I haven't given given that any thought. And usually, yeah, and, and put the ward the ward aside. I think the no, 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 is but no, more about their everlasting yeah. their everlasting credit. Yeah, SI usually gives you something that's thought thought provoking. They've turned it into a very uh, very good award where uh, there's a lot of conversation and content generated around it. I, I enjoy the lead up to that. But you bring up a really good point. Uh, you walk out of that U.S. Open and say, put the years side by side. And now that Serena is essentially done for the year, if Djokovic can run through the Masters finale in London and win that and really get well, almost all the big ones for the year, uh, other than the French, that, that, would, that would say a lot. Right. That, that would be a big statement because now the one place he hadn't won was in the U.S. on a hard court to, to, to get a championship this year, and he does that, makes the finals of every event he shows up in, save for the first one when Karlovich had eight bazillion aces to start the season uh, in, in a semi, I believe. So you're right, and I, you know, it's funny because uh, you've got Fed fans and you've got Nadal fans, and they were both incredible at their peak and winners of multiple slams and 
styles that appealed to people and fan bases that were very, are still incredibly loyal and don't want to even be insulted to think that maybe their guy won't get uh, to the top in that tournament that you're covering. And because of that, I have the utmost admiration for Djokovic. Right. I think Novak Djokovic has come into a situation where there were a lot of uh, people not rooting against him, but they didn't want him to knock off Fed. They didn't want him to knock off Rafa. And he's gotten himself to be the best player on the men's side in that game right now, without question. And I think that, to me, says a lot, because his perseverance was very necessary. And I admire what he's done. And it would be an interesting pick this year. Who's, who's the, when it's all said and done, who had the best year in tennis? Was it Djokovic or Serena? It would be interesting to see how somebody answers that question when we get to November. Yeah. Uh, ESPN has been working on this project called The Undefeated, a microsite. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, Jason Whitlock was kind of tied to that, and it's kind of his thing. And uh, then ESPN and, and Whitlock, they couldn't work it out or whatever. I have no idea what happened there. Um, as a prominent African-American in the sports media, and you, you, you hear about a project like The Undefeated, um, and obviously you've been focusing for a long time on calling your events, and that's sure. your wheelhouse. But do you look at something like that and just think – hmm, I want to watch that. I want to see how that develops. I want to see what we do there. I want to see the kind of smart people that work on it. I want to see uh, what happens. And maybe I just want to dip my toe in it in some way, somehow. Or do you just, it just doesn't, you just doesn't get on your radar like that. Yeah, I, I, I would be interested to see the content that's generated and what they do. Same thing as ESPNW. But I, I, I think sports is the one place where we don't, draw those barriers and uh, don't bring those issues up. And I think any well well put together, well thought out, well done piece, whether it's TV or radio, whatever digital medium it, it uh, might air in or be broadcast on radio as well, I, I think that that should not be something that's not a box on a census form. Yeah. I think you, you get good stuff out there, you put good stuff out there. I'm, I'm more than interested to read the perspective of any writer and think that there's a forum for that, or there should be a forum for that in the places where you go and get your sports news on a regular basis, whether it's SI site, ESPN site, uh, any of the Bleacher Report, any of the sites, the, the blogs that now are as plentiful and find many good writers and talented writers. I don't think you need to segment it to necessarily do the best work. And if, if some feel that that's the case and that promotes it, then that's that's great. Uh, if if you say that ESPN's coverage of uh, women's sports because of ESPNW's presence has been elevated, then good. And that would be the same thing then for undefeated if that takes shape and becomes a vehicle for that. But I'm I'm not looking for a one site to be a boutique. Uh, just as a sports fan, I'm just looking for all of that. In terms of the writing stuff, for me personally, ESPN.com. Uh, is not something I've really been involved in in terms of any writing. My my writing days, I want to say they ended when we did sports air because you know every time you go on the air, there's some writing that you do, uh, and I just I always found from an early point that the challenge of writing as the pictures were being put up on the screen was more satisfying to me and more of a fit with my talents than sitting down and writing. Uh, 700, 800 word takeout after that game about what happened. So I've kind of drifted away from that by the volume of what I do uh, with basketball, football, golf, and tennis, and all that stuff. So 
I don't think that's something that I'm going to be saying, I really need to be a part of doing that for that side at that point. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I sort of feel the way you do. Um, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but, uh, you know, like, Jane Levy is someone who is really close to the show. Um, I have no idea why. I'm so grateful for it. Uh, she's been on several times. She's so good to us. And um, I was reading, I was preparing for her to come on one time. And I was reading, just Googled and was reading this message board and there was a thread going about how people were so annoyed that anytime Jane was on, uh, people would just talk to her about being the woman that writes these amazing baseball books instead of talking to Jane about baseball, you know? And then to the shock of shocks, a few posts down, someone said, you should listen to her on the sportscasters because they just talked to her about baseball. And at first I was really proud of that. And then for a second I thought, well, maybe – I'm actually doing it wrong. You know, maybe that is something I should be talking to Jane about. And I hope that uh, Jane isn't sitting on the other end waiting for it and then hanging up saying, um, geez, what a dope. And and part of me uh, was thinking about the undefeated and talking to you and thought, you know, I should just ask him about it. Um, right. But it's interesting to think, you know, the first thing I thought of when I heard the the site uh, about the site was just, oh, I'm surprised we need that. But well, to, to me, uh, yeah. to me, that uh, the way that we've gone with the media, because it's not just that one hour, three hours a day of Sports Center, the way it was even 15 years ago. Uh, there are so many networks. There's so much TV on. There's so much digital space. I think the growth of the digital space has changed the opportunity. Usually, if there's good content out there, people find a way to find it, and I think that's where the industry has taken a significant turn. In some ways, it's become more Wild Westish because there aren't the gatekeepers out there that there once were, uh, the editors, the uh, folks to elevate your quality of work before it is turned out publicly. But I think we have more people than ever who have come to sport to cover it. There are more, more sports journalism schools uh, out there, more people going who want to be writers or TV sportscasters or radio hosts. And there are more people who don't even have that dream but love it and just start to dabble in it in terms of a podcast, a blog, and it mushrooms into a career. So the sports journalism world has never been broader. So there are places and homes for every type of story to be written. The question is, are they housed in a place where you regularly go to sample them? And that's why... Uh, the mega sites have had their success. That's why I have a, a great, uh, I guess, affinity for and respect for is probably the better word. Other people like uh, like Mike Florio, who did Pro Football Talk. Here's Pro Football right. Talk starting and has blossomed into an entire industry that's become a significant backbone to NBC's presence in the NFL on a regular basis during the week because Mike has a radio show and it's also blossomed into a daily TV show. And that just really started from a, from a blog, essentially, some, I don't know if it's 10 years ago, whatever it is. So that's the way the world has changed, and that's how digital has impacted sports. Nothing is undercovered and, anymore. The question is, what's the, uh, what's the mountaintop to shout it from? And the traditional media powers still have that opportunity, and that's why any, anything like the Undefeated or W, as we talked about before, is microsites. And... Grantland certainly, you know, I don't don't mean to leave that out. That right. just kind of set its own standard. The MMQB, 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah what, what Peter's done. You know, yeah. that's that's a regular for me. It's you no, know, that's how I start my Monday mornings reading Peter's stuff, and he's got a bunch of terrific writers in there who have the space to do a lot of good things, and uh, you know, there are a bunch of lengthy stories that I don't think you would have found elsewhere because it's a site just about football. So those things have grown. The as with everything in sports, whether it's on the field, on TV, on radio, magazine, newspaper, digital. The quality always finds a home and always finds an audience, and uh, th- that's why I applaud the folks who've done that. No matter what the what the housing is for their content, if it's good, we find it. Well, Mike Tirico can be found on Twitter, uh, but please don't go there and, and criticize him. Be kind. That's on quite all right. Yeah, he's part, at, part of the part of the part of the gig for everyone, he, isn't it? He's yes, he's at at Mike Tirico on Twitter, and he will be heading to San Diego uh, this week to see Michael Vick and the Steelers. And uh, whatever field goal kicker they decide to bring there, uh, play the Chargers. Uh, and also, uh, let's see, what else they got this year? Giants, Eagles, you know, you get in on that division stuff that Thursday nights seem to be hogging. Uh, yep, yeah. Giants, Eagles, Ravens, yeah. Cardinals, got mm-hmm. the Panthers and the Colts. End of the year, we got Cincy and Denver, a wild card game, Pro Bowl game, all that good stuff. So it'll be a Dallas and Washington still, so... A lot, a lot of fun years, and as we know at the NFL, all you got to do is show up and something crazy is going to happen, right? Yes, and the Lions will be back on Monday Night Football on December 21st to play the Saints, where hopefully they will be cheated again and the Saints will be <laughs> victors. I'm kidding about that, Mike. Said as a true Saints fan, right. which is the joy of sports, right? <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for the fourth time. Uh, hope, hopefully I thought of uh, something good to ask you. Uh, uh, certainly I was blessed by this uh, – divine intervention of this wackiness to sort of guide the interview but uh i can't thank you enough it's always an honor when you come on and uh hopefully we can do it again next year for number five sure look forward to it always appreciate it and uh just watch that take that eichel jersey off long enough to watch it <laughs> sounds good mike thank you thank you steve all right welcome back thanks to mike Tarico. From ESPN, Monday Night Football, for joining us. He also calls NBA for them, tennis. He worked the World Cup. Oh, that's right, yeah. He's one of their main dudes. Pretty sick that he comes on our show. It is, yeah. Once, uh, not once a year, like you said. The book club, this month is always the month for the best American sports writing. Uh, and as we record, it came out today. Uh, the best American sports writing 2015. Last year's book was edited by chris mcdougall and it's one of my favorite interviews ever done on the podcast um so if you want to go back and check that out oh it's so great uh the year before we didn't get the editor on uh we didn't get the editor the year michael wilbon did it uh but we did get the editor the first year which was jane levy and have had yeah a great relationship with jane since i don't know if we're gonna get right thompson he is pretty big at ESPN, so when I send them the link uh, to the Trico interview, I'm going to see if it's a thought, a possibility. I'll try. Um, if not, maybe we'll get um, Glenn Stout, the series editor, on. Uh, or if not, maybe we'll just get someone who uh, is featured in it. Um, you know, one of our people, because we got people. We do have people, yeah. You know, and they're in there. Like Tim Graham. That's right. Yeah, Tim Graham's in there for the Daryl Talley story, right? Yeah, yeah. so uh, maybe we get 
one of them, Tommy Tomlinson, who's been on the show. Mm-hmm. He's in there. Um, so, like I said, our people are there. Uh, so, the best American sports writing, 2015. It's always good, and it's cheap. Um, you can get a paperback right now from Amazon for $8.22. Um, and the Kindle version is 10 bucks. <laughs> of course it is. Of course, right? <laughs> uh, which is cheap for a Kindle book. Sure, right? it's just... Yeah, of course it's more than the book. Right, it costs literally nothing. Right. Uh, but, um, yeah, Best American Sports Writing 2015. We're going to take a break and come back with Jonah Carey. Our next guest is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and is a graduate of the journalism program at Concordia University. He is, of course, the baseball writer at Grantland. He's also done some baseball tonight. He's written some excellent books. The Extra 2% was the book he was working on the first time we talked to him. And, of course, his awesome Expos book was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, let's see. He is making his 10th appearance on the podcast today. A Warren Sportscasters, welcome to Jonah Carey. What's up, Jonah? Hey, how's it going? How you doing, buddy? I'm good. It's that time, right? We wait for this kind of all year, October, and October is baseball. Uh, to me, it's the first thing, thing I think of when someone says October. Uh, kind of the very th- first thing that comes to my mind is baseball playoffs. Um, and at this point we're talking on Friday, this is probably going to run on Tuesday we're talking on Friday and basically, uh, with three games to go, there's only really one spot left and that's the second, uh, wildcard spot in the American league. And then there's some, will they play at this stadium or will they play at that stadium kind of all over? How important do you think something like that is? If you were running a team, would you rather... Set your staff up and not worry as much about going on the road, or would you really focus on making sure? Uh, like, if you're Kansas City or Toronto right now, what would be your focus this last weekend? I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, I don't even think it's only setting your staff up. I think it's just rest. You know, these guys are exhausted. They've been going. It's a long, long grind. And if you walk into any clubhouse starting in about August, especially, everybody's just bonked out, man. They're really tired. And, uh, you know, they're finely tuned professional athletes. There's no question about it, but it's a long grind. It's not only that, that you're playing almost every day, 162 games, but there's a lot of tra- – and, again, the travel is nice. It's better than you and I have sitting in the middle seat on Southwest, but it's just it's, – it is a grind. Yeah. And uh, it starts in spring training, and it just keeps going and keeps going. Even in the offseason, guys are, are doing all kinds of stuff. So what they really need is rest more than anything. You know, greenies have been outlawed. Uh, by the game, and, and so you can't just pop amphetamines necessarily and get the edge that you want, and it becomes difficult. So if it means giving a couple guys a day off, whether it's Jose Bautista or somebody like that, that could potentially be more important than you know uh, one home game being swung one one way or another. It is the case that home field advantage matters a little bit statistically. It's about a you know fifty three fifty four percent situation as opposed to just straight fifty fifty on a neutral site or forty six fifty four I guess if you're in the other park. So I don't dispute right. that there's uh, value in that. But the players will tell you that sometimes they just need a day off. And and you know even if you don't want to think about the long grind, just think about this. 
they celebrate pretty hard. You know, guys are hungover and, and whatever. They definitely could use a day off uh, after they, they clinch. And so I don't begrudge that. And I think that's a, a good baseball tradition to uphold. You're not against the celebrations in any way, are you? I, I noticed, I was surprised at this, but I noticed some teams kind of getting busted on a little bit for celebrating too hard for just clinching playoff berths, quote-unquote, or uh, whatever. Um, or, you know, I remember last year maybe there was some uh, snickers about how hard uh, teams celebrated, quote-unquote, again, just the wild card. Um, to me, it's it's like you said, just such a long grind and, you know, there's so many teams that play 162 games, and still, uh, it's not quite as few as it once was, but still only so few of them get to this point. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, I don't... People who they judge, it's, it's just silly. Silly stuff. Uh, a hot take on everything, yeah. Exactly. Let's, uh, let's start in the American League a little bit. And the Blue Jays were a team, obviously, um, that were 500 in July, and uh, they made two really huge moves. Um, getting uh, Tulo uh, and uh, getting David Price. And yep. um, obviously everything changed. And then the Yankees, on the other hand, were a team who just sort of stood firm. Um, and the Blue Jays are going to win that division by five or six or maybe even seven, eight games, I suppose they could even win it by. Kind of irrelevant at this point. The Yankees are going to still make it as a wild card. First time since 2012 they're in the playoffs. Um, is it as simple as those two guys – uh, for the Blue Jays, uh, what turned it around for them? Well, not to Lewitsky. He's been hurt for much of the time. Um, no, it, it's not at all that simple, not even close. Price has made a big difference, but uh, there's a few reasons. Number one, they were a much better team than what their record indicated before the two-low trade. They were 50-51, and 51, but they had a plus 100-and-something run differential. It was a little bit of, not a little bit, a lot of bad luck. They were losing one-run games, which is partly due to bullpen, but partly due to just stuff happens in life. And, and uh, you could see their lineup, you could see you know their talent, and you could tell that they were a much better team than that. And some guys just started to perform a little bit better, and in particular was on the pitching staff. Price, sure. But Ari Dickey started pitching much, much better. I mean, he's had a, a very good second half. And here's a guy who's inconsistent, which is, you know, the nature of the knuckleball. But he started pitching much better. And you look at the bullpen, and they did acquire Latroy Hawkins and Mark Lowe. And that helped with depth, and that helped with those one-run games and so forth. But some bullpen guys just started pitching better. Brett Cecil started pitching better, and that gave them a real left-handed weapon. And then they used Aaron Sanchez. They, they called him up from the minors. Uh, he had been a starting pitcher. They made him the eighth inning guy. And that, for the most part, has been a very good decision. He's helped them a lot. So a lot of guys you know, that were just sitting on the roster just started playing better. Edwin Encarnacion uh, had a bad shoulder. You know, He was dealing. He had shots in his shoulder, and he was struggling with that. And uh, he just got healthy and started mashing. He had a period of, I don't know, 35 games where he hit over 400 with a whole bunch of home runs. And that carried them for a while. So it's just one of those things where there was some sort of tipping point where all of this talent, not just Price and the guys that they got at the trade deadline, but really the guys already on the roster, just started producing a lot better, and that made the biggest difference. I picked them at the beginning of the year to win the division. I thought they were very talented, and that was after Stroman got hurt even. Um, and Stroman, by the way, another great addition. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, once once those things fell into place, it just became obvious that they were the best team in the AL East, and I think they're the most talented team in all of baseball, actually. All of baseball. Yep. Yep. Um I had I had sort of spent a lot of the time during the season just sort of assuming that the Royals uh, were the best team in the American League for no other reason than they just ran out ahead of everybody for a while there, and 
it's easy with a team like that when you're not in the market or you're not watching them every day to just kind of have that in the back of your mind. Like, yeah, the Royals are the best team in the American League this year. Obviously, you we talked about the Royals um, last time we had you on, which was before the season started. Um, and we talked to Jeff Passan as well before the season started. And you both said the same thing about the Royals, that they were a team you guys both thought would take a step back uh, going into the season. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they were able to uh, to debunk that popular – I'm not like saying, oh, Jonah was wrong or, oh, Jeff was wrong. I mean this was the – this was what many people thought about them going in. How were they able to, uh, to prove everyone wrong if, if that's the right way to say it? They hit a lot better than they did last season. You know, there was a – it felt like the optimists – we're kind of assuming that all the guys who did well in the playoffs last year would all break out this year. And I just thought, well, I don't know if three guys are going to break out. And they did. They all did. You know, Kane broke out. Mustakis broke out. I guess at the end of the year, Hosmer's numbers are going to be pretty similar to what they were last year. But certainly Kane and Mustakis, whether it's momentum or pixie dust or whatever, absolutely took whatever gains they had last postseason and carried them forward to this year. And that that is a big difference. Those two guys, their offensive performance, that's a gain of – I don't know, five or six wins right there, and that's a big one. You know, other factors, uh, the rest of the division was terrible, so they were able to beat up on those teams quite a bit. Uh, The Tigers, obviously, huge disappointment. Uh, But even the Indians, to some extent, who are going to finish not far away in the wild card, but I thought they'd be even a little bit better than this. Um, And the White Sox, you know, there was some optimism around them, too. The Twins did play, did end up with a little bit better record than we expected, but overall, just a a very weak division, probably the weakest. Well, no, that's not true. The NL East is always the weakest division, but the second weakest division in baseball, uh, that probably, you know, helped them on the order of another, whatever, five or six. You could make up the number of number wins there. And, uh, yeah, you just add those factors together, combined with the fact that they certainly had some good skills. They played good defense. They had a good bullpen. That was known, and I don't think anybody expected that stuff to regress. Uh, but once they got those other kicks, that took them from being what I would have thought would be, yeah, you know, 500-ish team, a respectable team, but not great, to, uh, to yeah, just you know, winning 90-something and breezing into the playoffs. You know, it's kind of a fun, quirky thing about them during the playoff run last year was, you know, cool thing about baseball playoffs is we're all watching the same games at the same time. And uh, you can kind of hang out on Twitter a little bit, and it's like you're watching the games with everyone. And I remember watching the Royals games, and the stats guys, especially the advanced stats guys, people who look at baseball that way primarily, uh, it just seemed like they were never lined up with uh, with the Royals and the bunting and the running and all the kind of anti-money ball, if that's the right word, things that they did. Um, are they still that team this year? Do you still expect... Uh, the Royals to be playing Royals baseball and kind of to be a little bit on the outside of uh, the way the narrative for the game, uh, what it is in 2015, or have they changed a little bit from that? What do you what do you think about that little quirk uh, that sort of made the Royals a little fun last year in play? The Royals are 19th this year in sacrifice bunts. The Toronto Blue Jays, who might be the best offensive team in 50 years are ahead of them, have bunted more often than the Royals have. They're not a bunting team. They do run, but analytically people don't have a problem with running. What they have a problem with is jeopardizing their ability to score runs. However, the Royals have stolen bases at a 75% success rate, which is phenomenal. Anything above 70, 71, and you're in good shape. The Royals are tied for third best in Major League Baseball in stolen base success rate. If you're running and you're safe literally three-quarters of the time, 
that's fine. Nobody has a problem with that. Not analytically, not any other way. I think the people the thing that people objected to last year is they did bunt way more often, which they've stopped doing this year. Uh, and part of the reason they've stopped doing it is because they're a better offensive team. If Moustakas and Kane are going to home runs now, that's not the same thing as last year when they just didn't have enough guys and they right. felt like they had to manufacture runs. So they're just a better team. You know, they're not whatever perception we have of the Royals. And it's easy to kind of look from a distance and maybe you're not paying close attention to the Royals. Oh, yeah, same old Royals are back to the playoffs. They're not the same Royals. They're a better offensive club. Uh, you know, which is uh, maybe people could have predicted that. I don't know. Kendrick Morales, by the way, is the other guy. Uh, he had not been good for a couple of years. He'd been injury prone. And then he has come up and done a very good job for them, too. That's probably worth another three wins or so. So, you know, suddenly we have guys who can hit the ball to the ballpark or hit doubles, and and uh, and that makes a big difference. So, you know, there were things that stayed the same. The bullpen's very good. Even without Holland, they're very good. Again, the defense is very good. They do run the base as well. Uh, that's all true. But but some of the some of the – supposed small ball stuff, especially bunting, isn't there anymore. They just don't do that. They're just a better offensive team, plain and simple. We've already talked about it, and it seems like a lot of people have talked about the incredible surge that the that the Blue Jays have had, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, since uh, July. The, the Rangers are another team that kind of came out of nowhere uh, and clinched their spot. I remember we had uh, Lana Berry on the podcast mm-hmm. um, sometime in August, I think, and we were, we were talking about this and that and baseball, and the, the the Rangers, I don't think either of us really even talked about them as a team that was a playoff team. And it seemed like after we hung up that day, it just sort of started happening. Um, and they inched up and they inched up and they were tied in the wild card. And now they're kind of in control of that division uh, with a few games to play. What have the Rangers done? Um, seven and three in their last time. What changed about them in the August range uh, that was able to put them into the playoffs? Well, it's interesting, you know, when they made the trade for Cole Hamels, the thought was, oh, all right, okay, Cole Hamels, you know, that, that could be fine for the next three years, and, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, but there was not much expectation that he would be leading them to the playoffs this year, and I think that even if you pin John Daniels down, the general manager of the Rangers, he'd probably say the same thing. He'd say, yeah, you know, we, we felt that we could get this good asset for less than market value, and it was worth it. We wanted a top-of-the-rotation starter, especially with you, Darvish, you know, his health being in question, so let's go get him. And they did that, and of course he's pitched very well. And then they started getting other guys back from injury. You know, certainly a lot of pitchers back from injury, uh, some offensive guys as well. And uh, and there were some hitters who, you know, even when they had recovered from injuries, just were not that good and have started playing much better. Shinsu Chu, uh, top of the list. Shinsu Chu over the last uh, month, month and a half, is maybe the best hitter in the American League. He's just been unbelievable. Uh, getting on base, doubles and homers. Name it. You know, he, he has been absolutely dominant in that respect, and that makes a gigantic difference. And then you start to think of the rest of the lineup. They've got Fielder. Rugnet Odor is a real nice young player, uh, you know, along with some of the mainstays, certainly. Uh, Mitch Moreland, another breakout guy, by the way, who's been really good. So, you know, they've had uh, several hitters take a real step forward this year. They've had better health just occurring in the last recently couple of months. Uh, combined with some other circumstances, you know, winning a few run-run games. Oh, and the bullpen. Gosh, we have to mention the bullpen. They rebuilt this whole bullpen on the fly this year. You know, they've had, I think, three different closers this season. Uh, everybody from the fifth inning guy to the ninth inning guy has pretty much turned over. A lot of homegrown players. Sean Tollison was a waiver wire uh, guy from the Dodgers that they picked up in November of 13, just a, you know, an afterthought. The Dodgers could really use a, an impact reliever like that right now, by the way. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's just everything. They just they changed on the fly. And uh, that's a great story. You know, we've talked about the Rangers. We've written about the Rangers, certainly. But in some ways, maybe not even enough, because it really is, 
you know, you talk about these season-to-season transformations and, you know, whatever the Jays and the Cubs and even the Astros, I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs or not, but the Astros are a great story. But the Rangers, it's all happened within this season, you know, just from the last few months, things have changed. Whereas we were talking about the Jays and saying, this was a Jays team that was underachieving, but they didn't necessarily fundamentally change. They just started playing better. The Rangers, it's they changed completely. They changed the actual structure of the roster. The rotation looks different than it did in April and May. The, the bullpen is completely different. The lineup is pretty different. They just turned the whole roster over, and it worked. So, you know, at the end, we'll, we'll credit all these players and, and Jeff Bannister, the first-year manager. But, gosh, the front office deserves credit for saying, this isn't good enough. We have to blow this stuff up and change it. They did, and it's worked. Couple th- quick, yeah. I think that's a really interesting uh, the Rangers uh, that we just haven't talked enough about in general. Couple quick things we got to move on in the National League and finish up. Uh, is uh, Donaldson the MVP of the league? I would vote for Mike Trout. You'd vote for Trout, okay? Um, who's the Cy Young winner? Uh, David Price. Do you think the Yankees can be a factor in the playoffs? Any team could be a factor. The playoffs are a crapshoot. If you have, if you're in the dance, you have a chance. Last the last year, the two wild card teams made it to the World Series. Is there a series in the American League you're hoping to see play? Is there one you're hoping to see happen? Um, no, I think they're all kind of compelling matchups in in, in some way. You know, there's some regional stuff. Like if Houston ends up playing Texas, that would be kind of fun. Actually, you know, we've seen some pretty fun battles. Uh, just these last couple of weeks, including just just recently, a few days ago, so that could be interesting. But I mean, the Blue Jays, all these teams, there are a lot of teams that are new to the playoffs, and so as a result, any of those matchups are interesting. Like I'd like to see the the Blue Jays play anybody because it's the Blue Jays. We're not used to seeing the Blue Jays in the playoffs. Let's see how they match up against uh, literally any team. But but they're all they're all good. It's not that oh, I really need to see this necessarily. The NL Central is basically going to have a tournament. Um, the second and third place teams are going to play. Uh, it's funny to say that. I mean, both of those teams would be division winners and certainly the other two divisions in the uh, the National League uh, and also in the American League West. And as of right now, they'd be the winners in every other division in baseball. Uh, 92 wins is the highest in the American League. Pittsburgh has 96 and Chicago has 94. And the winner of that is going to go play St. Louis. When you look at the three teams in the NL Central, um what are the? What do you think is the going to be the key to? I mean, it's always pitching. It seems like in the playoffs, right? But um, when you look at these three teams in the little tournament they're about to have, what's interesting to you? What stands out? Uh, what do you think of? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to give a nuanced answer because honestly, like whatever keys you think, it's it's one game or five games or even seven games. So, sure, yeah, the you know, if the, if the Cubs advance. Then they need the rest of the rotation to pitch well, not just Arietta and Lester. They need to find a number three and a number four starter. That's that's right. I guess obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the Pirates have had good offense from their outfield this season, but their infield, especially without uh, Jungle Gong, is weakened. So they got to figure out some infield offense. Uh, Cardinals have been good all year, I guess. Uh, but their underlying metrics don't necessarily match up quite with their record. They've had some; their pitchers really suppress results with men on base. Is that going to be a factor or not? So we could we could fixate on these analytical things, and I'm forced to write these uh, series previews, and I will, and I have to give a prediction because I have to. But it's it's folly. I mean, you know, you could talk about 162 games. We could sit here and do real analysis on this stuff, but anything can happen in, in seven games, and certainly anything can happen in one game. My God, I mean, the Royals A's game last year, that that wild card play in game, 
was ridiculous. You know, this, this supposedly vindicated everything the Royals have ever done. <laughs> and, oh, they run now and they bunt, and I guess they're great or whatever. Yeah, but you know what? John Lester was pitching, and we didn't really know it at the time. Turns out John Lester doesn't know how to throw to first base. And I could have stolen second base off of John Lester. You know what I mean? So there are all these things that are we, we sit and we break them down. And, oh, what's this? And tell me the advantage. Who's got this? Who's going to win this series? I don't know. I have no idea who's going to win. It's going to be the team that happens to play best at the time. And whatever keys I think are probably not going to be the right keys. 162 games, I can give you real analysis. Playoffs, I'm guessing. How huge of an advantage is having Greinke and Kershaw at the top of the rotation for the Dodgers not going huge, to the playoffs? They didn't win last year, and they didn't win the year before, so whatever. I mean, that, that, that's not – and I would, if you really want to go in that direction too, I could point out that the Mets have you know, DeGrom, Syndergaard, and Harvey, and I could say this other team has that. So it, it's not like starting pitching is everything. And, and even – we saw it with Kershaw. Kershaw's you know, the best pitcher on the planet. He struggled, yeah. 250 innings by the time he gets to his big start in the LCS – he might get tired, and if he gets tired, he's only good for six innings. And if he's only good for six innings, what are you doing about the other three innings? So, no, it's it's on advantage. It's great, but people are all obsessed, obsessed coming into the playoffs with who has the best starting pitching. The Royals' starting pitching was garbage last year. Terrible. They had nothing. James Shields, who was supposed to be their ace, it was mediocre in the playoffs. Your Donna Ventura did have a start, a good, good start or two, but he was erratic, and everybody else was terrible. And it doesn't matter because they had a bullpen that could shut you down for not one or two innings, but five innings. And they had enough offense here or there and base running and, and quite frankly, luck that they were able to get somewhere. The only, you know, the only thing you could say about last year's World Series was that it was ultimately decided by Madison Bumgarner, and that's great. But that assumes that you have clairvoyance and can figure out who's going to be Bumgarner. You think it's Granky and Kershaw, but they haven't done it in the past. Maybe it's Arietta, maybe it's Garrett Cole. I don't know. And it might not, you know, even if the Giants made the playoffs again this year, you said the Giants have Bumgarner, he's racing the hole. Do we know that Bumgarner is going to pitch like Bob Gibson in 1968 again all through the playoffs? Of course we don't know that. We have no idea. So this is purely guessing. Whatever, if you think that that's a great advantage, perfect. I will submit to you that the Blue Jays can smash Greinke and Kershaw to a pulp because they have a better offense. But you know what? Maybe we get into that game, and not only do the Jays not score a lot of runs, but maybe... Marco Estrada shuts down the Dodgers, and that game ends one to nothing, and the Jays win. There's no way to know. It's small sample size, and you introduce all kinds of variants once you have a small sample size. You know what I'm sorry, sort of hearing or sensing is sort of a frustration that you're a guy who spends the whole season, like you said, with this 162 game sample and breaking everything down and analyzing in all these different directions and doing it very entertainingly and successfully. And then when the league transfers to playoffs, you feel like it turns into a a crapshoot, and I'm sensing, sensing a real frustration about that. Yeah, I don't... Sorry, I just said uh, my computer went off for a second. That's okay. Uh, well, re-ask the question and we'll edit it if that's okay. Okay. Uh, the question was, I kind of hear a guy who... He writes about this 162-game season. He does it really analytically from so many different angles. He's got this great giant sample. And you do it entertainingly in different venues. And now we're getting into the playoffs, and it's a smaller sample, and I sense just a frustration in kind of talking about the different things because of the crapshoot. That's a word you've used a few times. That is the, the, the playoffs. Yeah, I don't feel frustrated at all by it. I mean, my job is to predict things. I just think that it's, it's silly for other people to weigh in and say, I know the answer. Obviously, this thing is going to happen, and this team's going to win the World Series. I like the unpredictability because I'm, I'm a fan, and it's good to watch, and does the best team really need to win? I mean, you know, in that case, March Madness is ridiculous, too, because you're playing 30-plus games, and then one can knock you out. So I'm, uh, my friend Dave Damashek would argue that it's very silly in all seasons. You know, everything should just be decided at the end of the regular season, and playoffs are dumb and whatever. And, and I get that. To some 
actually. But, uh, you know, unpredictability is supposed to be what makes sports great, and I like watching it. I, I just think that it's funny. That's all that we have to go make these predictions. I have no idea. I, whatever you think of my predictions, bet with it, bet against it, do whatever you want. My regular season ones are pretty good. I do over-unders every year. Uh, my record's pretty good. I think I'm tracking about 70% historically, which is good. Um, but other than that, you know, your, your guess is as good as mine. These are such, such small sample sizes. And the best player in the universe, if you put Babe Ruth in his prime against the worst pitcher in baseball, you know what? The worst pitcher in baseball is going to get the edge, I don't know, 55% of the time, something like that. So it, it, it doesn't really matter. You know, everything that you think you know, you don't know. Would you like to see the playoff format change at all? If you could do it your way, would it be different? The only thing that I would change is I would change the regular season format a little bit. Um, I, this whole Cubs Pirates thing is, you know, it, it happens to have occurred this year, so it's a little bit irksome. But I just think in general, you want to be thinking about uh, the best way to do things. I, I, first of all, I don't like interleague every day. I think that needs to go. Um, I, I grant you that I'm biased in this respect because obviously I'd like to see a team in Montreal, but I do think the, team, the sport should expand. And honestly, if they expanded to. Portland and San Antonio, I'd still be okay with that. I believe there should be either eight divisions of four, or even better, four divisions of eight, um, or even better than that, no divisions, and you just have each league, and you go back to the old school way uh, where it's 16 teams each, no interleague, everybody just plays each other, and you see what's what. But for obvious reasons, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, the, the Yankees and Red Sox, Cardinals and Cubs don't want to give up those rivalries and uh, there are revenue considerations at stake and so forth. But I'm, I'm a big fan of fairness. And although, you know, fairness is probably never going to be possible in the playoffs, realistically, I do think let's try to make it a little bit more fair in the regular season so we can at least determine who has the right to take advantage of the uncertain uh, playoff atmosphere. It's not clear to me uh, that, that everything is on the up and up when it comes to 162 games. Generally speaking, it's the best test of talent, and that's all true. Uh, but if one team, interleague, is playing you know, the Marlins and the Phillies and the Braves, and the other team has to play a lot of Mets this year, for instance, uh, then that doesn't necessarily match up. And that can happen just based on quirks of the schedule. All right. Uh, uh, real quick again, who's the National League MVP? Harper. Uh, the Cy Young? I don't know. Who would you vote for? I don't know. I'll tell oh. you in three days. I, haven't, I really haven't sat down. And, you know, it, it's so close that there's no... There's no way for me to distinguish it, and if I'm not mistaken, each guy, or at least one or two of the guys, has a start left, uh, so I'm going to wait and see what happens with that. And the three guys are Granke, Kershaw, and um, Jake. Yeah, yeah, right. And who you got Blue Jays versus who in the World Series? I don't have the Blue Jays in the World Series. I'm not making any predictions for the playoffs. Oh, okay. All right. I was just going off what you said. The Blue Jays are the best team in baseball. That absolutely does not mean anything. Gotcha. You can follow Jonah Carey on Twitter, at Jonah Carey, and you can read his uh, writing on Grantland, uh, also sometimes uh, the 538, and you can see him occasionally on Baseball Tonight. Everyone talks about Moneyball, uh, and it's an amazing book. The Extra 2% uh, follows the the Tampa, and not exactly the same way, but they're somewhat similar to make a comparison, and it's just as great. And, of course, his passion for the Montreal Expos uh, just burst through the pages of his amazing Exos book. I recommend it as well. Anything else you want to mention or promote, Jonah? No, I appreciate the kind words. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Enjoy the playoffs. Thanks, you too.
All right, I want to thank Mike Tirico and Jonah Carey for being on the podcast today. Uh, you can find this podcast and our last podcast with Richard Deitch and on our website, www.sports-casters.com. That was S.L. Price, he said. I accidentally... Oh, did you mute the S.L. Price I, part? I think I cut that out. That's my bad. Bad right. operator. You should have cut me off when I was talking about tickling your wife's a-hole earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of now. <laughs> a more appropriate time earlier. Uh, the podcast is on Stitcher and iTunes and all those places. You can also email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters, and at Don Like Sports. Uh, so go ahead, Don. All right. I'm still laughing about how we don't plug ourselves, but that came up twice. <laughs> All right, my thing this week is uh, very nerdy, not surprisingly. I've had this app on my phone forever. Uh, I've never played the actual game Fallout, but it's super popular. There's a fourth one coming out, and with it they did like a companion app called Fallout Shelter. And I was afraid if I started playing with it, I was going to get hooked on it, and I was totally right. It's like The Sims kind of with uh, like a post-apocalyptic Fallout Shelter and uh you build families and you have to fight fires and is that the thing you posted on Facebook you finally won? No, that was a nerdier thing. That that's uh, Hearthstone. That I've talked about that before too, but I yeah, I had a twelve win arena in Hearthstone finally after however long I've played it. But uh yeah, so after I got that arena run last night, I think I was Hearthstoned out a little bit, so I played Fallout Shelter and it's awesome. So I think I'm gonna tell Michelle about it later. It it feels a little bit like the Sims. I think I could get her hooked on it too. Do you ever play the Settlers of Catan app? I have, yes. Did you enjoy it? Um, uh, to a or point. Or did you feel like... I mean, the best part of the Settlers is negotiating with people in real life. And, like, that part's not great. And with three players, if, if you only play with, like, three computer players or one in... Yourself and two computer players, I think it's a victim of the same thing like real Catan is. It's just a race. Like, you almost don't interact at all. But uh, I have played it, yeah. Do any other board games translate to app form? Uh, Ticket to Ride's pretty good, except for... They charge enough for it. I discovered they had... uh, I mean, I didn't discover it, but I figured out there must be a maximum score you can get. And I like if you get all the routes, based on how many trains you have, you can make one continuous route, so you win the longest train and like the highest bonuses and i looked it up someone did the math on it figured out that longest route so when i play it's almost like solitaire because that's all i'm trying to do is go for the highest possible score but it's still it's a good it's a good app there's lots of them out there i haven't tried them all i actually have a tab open on my computer right now it says the 10 best board game apps so i was going to check them out tell me some of them uh coup is one of them it's a game i have but haven't played yet Catan, ticket to ride carcassonne i've played that before too Galaxy Trucker, I've never played the game, but it's probably good in app form. Pandemic, I have. Splendor is a game I own. It's pretty fun. No mainstream board games like... Monopoly or anything? Yeah. No. No. Agricola, Lords of Waterdeep, those are all good board games, and I guess they translate well to the app. Is Yahtzee a board game? Sure. Yeah. Enough. I mean, I, I have a game called uh, King of Tokyo, which is almost exactly Yahtzee, but there's some luck mitigation, and there's, like, things you can do with the crappy dice rolls, too, so I like it better. Like, it's totally replaced Yahtzee for me. I would never play Yahtzee <laughs> if I had the choice, but uh, sure, it's a board game, yeah. It's amazing. You have a wife for me to joke about. 
<laughs> tickling her. I know. Whenever I, know. I post something like that, usually <laughs> the first thing that follows, I normally will write something like, sorry, ladies, but I'm taken. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of cool dudes, uh, <laughs> I got a really cool take here myself that I'm sure will win over the ladies. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Jimmy Graham and the start to his season, which hasn't been ideal. I think last night he had four catches for 20-ish yards, and mm-hmm. I think he's at games worse. I think he has one touchdown, uh, maybe two. Um, here's the thing about Jimmy Graham. Uh, we got a group. One of my fantasy leagues is a group chat, and uh, someone today wrote, why did probably they're frustrated they probably have Jimmy Graham. They wrote, why did Seattle trade for Jimmy Graham? Right. And uh, someone else, not me, wrote, Drew Brees made Jimmy Graham. Drew Brees makes a lot of guys. That's not really true. Listen, here's the thing about Jimmy Graham. You might remember that the Seahawks were the team that always screamed loudest that Jimmy Graham was soft. Right. And Jimmy Graham is soft. Mm -hmm. He's a really sensitive guy. Yeah, I think we've talked about He's this a, a really bit before, yeah. emotional and sensitive guy. He was abandoned when he was younger. Um and what Drew Brees did to make Jimmy Graham, if that's the word you have to use, is he loved Jimmy Graham. And Jimmy Graham was his guy and he led Jimmy Graham and he he nurtured him. And also Jimmy Graham is very raw. He didn't play much college football. Um, because he played basketball, right? Every time, okay, right, it's yeah. the old thing. Every time Jimmy Graham does something, the announcer says, "Oh, he played basketball in college." Like you know, like we don't know that yet. Um, you, this is usually like a monologue type segment, but I have a question for you. When yeah, you're done, so don't don't no, you me, can don't jump in. I was jumping on you. No, keep going. No, keep no. Going, what I wanted to say is, you know, he's still very raw, and with and, and Drew Brees would spent a lot of time explaining to him routes and and decision-making in the routes and formations. And he knew the Saints' offense really well. And a really key part of the Saints' offense was Jimmy Graham. The last two seasons especially, Jimmy Graham was in the center, and the offense revolved around him. And I don't know how well he's picking up on what the offense is in Seattle. I'm sure it's different. Um, The Saints don't have a quarterback like Seattle does. Yeah, they might be the same height, but they certainly don't. Saints don't run much read option. I mean, despite Breeze's height, he's a, pretty much a pocket passer. Um, and like I said, it's a raw, young football player who is sensitive and did have to walk into the locker room where right. he was most heavily criticized. And yeah, when the trade went down, people said, uh, people from the Legion of Boom or whoever, they said, oh man, that's just, you know, field talk, whatever. I don't think it was that for Jimmy Graham. I think it was really personal to him, and I guarantee it was really hard for him to walk into that room. And I know he's taking some shots at the Saints, and I understand because he's hurt. He didn't want to leave. He wanted to be with Breeze. He wanted to be there. He was really hurt when they questioned his contract and all that, um, and that hurt him last year, especially in the beginning of the year. And uh, I just think that I I made a wrestling analogy on Twitter that when Bret Hart – left the WWF and went to WCW. Uh, before Bret Hart made the decision, Vince McMahon said to him, WCW won't know what to do with a Bret Hart. And he was right. And I think it's, you could have said to Jimmy Graham, Seattle's not going to know what to do with the Jimmy Graham. And it's only been four weeks, and of course they could figure it out. But right now, to me, it sort of feels like a round peg, square hole kind of a thing, or if that's the right term. 
All right, I thought I had a three-part question, but I can't remember the first part. Uh, initially, when they were traded, there were some reports that came out that said Drew Brees was shocked. This is when people maybe thought that the Saints were just Yeah, I, I think he was shocked. Okay, so the second part, if both teams could do this trade over right now, who says no to that? I mean, the Saints' offense hasn't looked like the Saints' offense, and Seattle's offensive line hasn't looked like Seattle's offensive line. The Saints would probably say no because the linebacker has been so good, Stephen Anthony. Oh, why did I think they got a center? They got a center oh. and a pick. Oh, and a pick. Which okay. was a first-round pick where they picked pick Stephen Anthony. I got you. And I think that... He's been good enough. He's to... been so good, and he's a rookie at a position where we had nothing. Okay, what if the trade was... If it was Unger for Graham straight up, of course we'd trade back. And maybe the 31st overall pick that you don't know what it is, like what it's going to become. They they still hold tight and keep the pick, you think? Like I'm going like in a hypothetical. Like if they could see what was going to happen. Like it's just it's a weird it was a weird trade at the time. People critic this is one that people don't need hindsight for. They criticized yeah. the Seahawks, especially. Like why Jimmy Graham, you're a run first. It was weird for a lot of reasons. For one, because a lot of people initially thought, well, the Saints are doing this for their salary cap, but it didn't help the salary cap. Oh, at that all. was that was the other thing I guess I was yeah. gonna ask. If he doesn't hold out, does the trade happen? Like Maybe. If the whole arbitration. Thought, Maybe yeah. I don't think it was about that as much okay. as I think it was about. They're like, look, we need to improve a lot. Uh, we need to make we need to make it drastic. Yeah. I think for some reason someone said, well, maybe our best at who's our biggest tradable asset, and they thought it was Jimmy, Jimmy Graham. Graham. Sure. And they did get a pretty good haul for Jimmy Graham. Yeah, sure. Especially if the center plays say four years there. No, I'm not criticizing what the Saints did at all. I mean, their offense does not look the same without him. That's it's not I mean, the same without him. Maybe it's you, not. Maybe you can offer something less. I mean, they won't because this isn't a team that seems like it's going to win right now. But I mean, if they were one Jimmy Graham away, I mean, they could probably get him at a discount, which would be weird for the same player. But yeah, Seattle. If I was them, if they asked me and they wouldn't, I'd just say like. You got to just love this kid. Like, he's just a really sensitive guy. And, like, what Ray Lewis called him a queen tight end. Part of the problem, too, is what I said about Tannehill. If the Saints were 4 0, or sorry, if Seattle was 4 0 right now, they're not blasting Jimmy Graham for his play on the field. He's been okay. He just hasn't been Jimmy Graham. But they're 2 and, he's and been 2. Largely and he's a, not important. Right. He's, they're 2 and 2, and he was the big piece they brought in, and he's. Right. Anyone can Fairly catch inconsequential, four right? passes for 25 yards, right? Sure. I mean, any guy, any NFL guy can do that. And he's not so. known for blocking. No. And right. that, that was with Ray Lewis and Trent Dilfer. So Ray Lewis called him a queen tight end, and they were getting on him for bad blocking. And uh, one of the guys or someone else made a point, like, yeah, well, you know, Tony Gonzalez, when he played in Atlanta, we had two tight ends, and one of them blocked. You usually ran to the other side of where Tony Gonzalez was because he wasn't a good blocker, so you'd run behind the other tight end. Okay. Whatever. I mean, I don't think the tight end position in the NFL is about blocking as much as it used to be. No, I don't either. But in Seattle, maybe it was. That's and why and they should have known right that. Oh, yeah, like, sure. I mean, it's their team. Yeah. There was no secret that Jimmy Graham wasn't a, good, a good blocker. blocker right. So, yeah. um, But it, you know what? you got to make this kid feel like he's very, very important. And Drew Brees did that. And maybe that is another example of what a great leader Drew Brees is.